This is The Rounds Table. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another exciting show on The Rounds Table. I'm your host, Kieran Quinn. I have a brand new guest for your entertainment today. His name is Dr. Ariel Lefkowitz. He is the Chief Medical Resident at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Ariel, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us on The Rounds Table. It is an honor and a privilege, and uh, I really want to thank you for having me on. Well, Ariel, you've chosen a very, very interesting article for us this week. Uh, it is published in The Lancet uh, in this past uh, month, September 28, 2016. The title is Interventions to Prevent and Reduce Physician Burnout. Now, Ariel, in your job as Chief Medical Resident, I'm sure you, you interact with a lot of medical trainees and potentially see the signs and symptoms of burnout in these individuals. Can you take us through some of your experiences or some of your thoughts around this? Well, it really is something that I do have the fortunate or unfortunate responsibility to see day to day. I keep a big box of Kleenex in my office because I do have residents stopping by to uh, tell me uh, how they're doing. The fortunate thing is that most of my residents are doing quite well. But of course, as we'll talk about in this study, the prevalence of burnout is quite significant. Uh, I try to tell them to kind of normalize it. I think the most important thing, first and foremost, is to identify it. And burnout is common. But uh, suppose, if you will, that a medicine R1 comes to your office as the chief medical resident. Uh, they feel down in the dumps. They're not feeling quite like themselves. They feel more tired. They feel like nothing they do matters. Their role doesn't really accomplish anything. And they're having trouble lately connecting with their patients. They also tell you that they feel like lots of their colleagues are feeling similarly. What do you do? I don't know what I would do, I should say, in this situation, but it certainly sounds hauntingly familiar to my March of second year residency, uh, where I certainly felt that same way. Take us to the evidence, Ariel. So uh, we'll consult The Lancet in this article that uh, uh, you mentioned already to answer this clinical query. A little bit of background, what is physician burnout? It's defined as a work-related syndrome that involves emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. And the prevalence of burnout has reached around 50% in both residents and staff physicians. So certainly something that we need to get on top of, especially because it can have consequences on patient care, professionalism, and of course, physicians' self-care and safety, uh, with uh, suicide being the worst outcome possible, of course. Wow, 50%. That's an alarming rate. So what did this, know, what did this really study is. seek to answer around physician burnout? So the, the question that it asked of the literature, this is a systematic review. So it looked at what literature existed on this particular topic. So in staff physicians and physicians in training, it asked whether interventions to prevent and reduce physician burnout when compared to control groups not receiving the interventions would result in a change in overall burnout and in the scores for emotional exhaustion and depersonalization. So you said physicians in training, but not medical students, is that correct? That's right. So non-physician healthcare providers and medical students exclusively in trials uh, were excluded. Okay. And what kind of, of studies and trials did they look at to help answer that question? So once all the uh, trials were screened, they found 15 randomized control trials and 37 cohort studies that met their criteria. 
take us through the bottom line, the main message for our listeners. What, what were their principal findings? So the principal finding was that employing strategies aimed at relieving burnout on the individual level and at a system level, which I'll tell you a little bit about in a moment, can result in clinically meaningful decreases in burnout among physicians. So not a very directed or single thing that reduces burnout, but rather they found that a spectrum of interventions might be helpful. Okay, so that's that's interesting to know. There's there's some hope that these things work. Can you take us through the details a little bit more and help us understand what's been done? Sure. So with so many trials I've already alluded to that were included in this paper, uh, I'll give you an idea of the sorts of strategies that some of the papers that they found endeavored to study. So, for example, one study studied an eight-week course of two-hour meditation sessions. Another one looked at uh, stress management and adaptive coping sessions, while another one uh, looked at small group communication skills training. And uh, finally, a fourth that used mindfulness. I categorize that as uh, individual-based studies, so one's geared at uh, helping individuals increase their resiliency, for example. The other group of strategies uh, were based around duty hour restrictions. So there were a few studies looking at uh, the 2003 duty hour restrictions that were employed in the United States. So that was an observational trial, of course. There was one randomized control trial that compared two-week versus four-week attending rotations on the internal medicine service. So really a a different sort of strategy than these individual course-based methods. Overall, what were some of the differences that they found um, and how they measured those uh, as far as these different types of interventions, whether it's a randomized trial or a pre-post intervention kind of uh, study? So a lot of these studies use the MASLAC burnout inventory, M-A-S-L-A-C-H, MASLAC. And the MASLAC burnout inventory is a set of questions uh, judging someone's burnout. And one of the uh, embedded scores that it reveals is the emotional exhaustion score, while another one is the depersonalization score. And so this meta-analysis used those scores in order to see if it could judge how effective these, these trials were. I think it would be important to just point out to our listeners that the the Maslach score is a very well validated, you know, going back as far as the 70s, means of measuring professional burnout, and not in just in physicians, but also in other professions. So it's it's sort of the most well recognized score to measure to measure burnout, and then I think it's you know appropriate in this situation that they're using it. Okay, Ariel, thanks for taking us through the MASLAC measurement systems. What were the actual findings that they found using this, uh, this MASLAC score? So combining all the trials that they found met their inclusion criteria, they found that overall burnout decreased from 54% to 44% over all the trials. Emotional exhaustion score decreased 2.5 points on the, the measurement tool that they used, and the depersonalization score decreased about... 0.64 points. Now I should point out that there is actual evidence that has linked even one point changes in burnout scores with meaningful differences in self-perceived major medical errors as well as suicidal ideation. So even though it may sound kind of piddling, it, it actually may be quite significant. Besides reporting percentages, the score itself, do we have an understanding or an appreciation of what a significant change on this score scale is? Well, you know, it's hard to say because in order to make these trials quantitative, 
we lose a lot of the qualitative data that allows us to understand, you know, what these people who have burnout are going through. I think that's what one of the things that shocks us so much about the 50% prevalence of burnout. We just can't imagine that all, you know, that half of the colleagues that we're running into on a day-to-day basis are going through something so tough. Yeah, and this trying to quantify that maybe has some limitations. Were there any individual or particular types of interventions that stuck out as more effective than others in this uh, study? That question, I think, is the one that remains uh, the most glaringly unanswered from this particular study. Uh, We're left with a list of strategies that may be helpful. So in addition to the ones I already mentioned, uh, another interesting one was belonging intervention, where junior residents would meet and discuss uh, reading accounts by senior residents of tough times they had gone through. There was an interesting reflective writing workshop. But, you know, the the uh, efficacy of one trial to another was pretty uniform. That was both across the individual versus the uh, structural changes, as well as uh, between residents compared to uh, ones aimed at staff physicians. Uh, these structural changes, as you mentioned before, were things like duty hours restriction and sort of non-individual focused interventions. What do you think then the strengths of this systematic review that's published in The Lancet work? So, you know, the strength is in that it showcased a wide variety of studies. It pulled a lot of data that I think was quite disparate. There was no place to go and, and find a, a good kind of uh Uh, reservoir of studies, and it highlighted the studies that may change burnout scores that we might be able to draw from, both for me as a chief resident, for ways in order to try out something that might help my residents, but also, I think, highlighted uh, areas where we might benefit from further research. And did you think there was any major weaknesses or limitations to the study in itself? I do. So one of the things that I found a little bit uh, troublesome was the fact that these duty hour restriction observational trials were lumped in with the wellness or resilience interventions that I mentioned before. And, you know, they really barely have anything to do with each other other than that they both used the Maslach inventory to study both uh, the results of uh, each of them. So I think that might have muddied the waters a bit in terms of the usefulness that we can kind of derive which ones might be the most effective. There's no clear recommendations on on what might be useful, which is why my bottom line was so vague earlier. And finally, there were no long-term effects or post-intervention effects in the trials that we studied. So we don't know how lasting these resilience uh, interventions might be for those people who take them. Those are some interesting points. Summarize it for us, uh, Ariel. Strong study, take the results at face value, or major limitations that leave you wanting? I think that this is an important study, but not a strong study. So I think that it's useful to have this reservoir of interventions that that worked. You know, each of these uh, interventions has value. But uh, are any of them groundbreaking? Are any of them practice changing? I would say not obviously so. Main learning points of the article, Ariel, for our listeners? So let's go back to our case where we have our resident sitting in front of us. First things first is to let them know what we know about the prevalence of burnout. And uh, I think here a personal story of burnout might be helpful in order to normalize what a lot of residents go through. But then to point them in the direction of some useful resources. So we know that mindfulness can be helpful. We know that stress reduction can be helpful. Those things are clear from this study. 
And then we know that this uh, resident's colleagues seem to have some signs of burnout as well. And so perhaps we'd like to start one or two of these interventions at our hospital uh, in order to address the greater problem of burnout. Let's say a creative writing workshop, because that's one of my own babies. <laughs> Your own personal interests, and it is a fascinating thing that you do. Well, I appreciate uh, you taking us through the article. Let's switch gears now. Ariel, my article this week uh, was published in JAMA Internal Medicine, July 11, 2016. And it's titled, Sex Differences in Physician Salary in U.S. Public Medical Schools. I found this article to be fascinating because, one, recently I wrote my own article on physician earning in the context of the ongoing labor conflict between the Ontario government and the Ontario Medical Association and learned in that process about differences in specialty earnings, and more importantly, the trials and tribulations of finding out, being able to accurately quantify just how much physicians actually earn. It's a very difficult task. And then this article caught my eye because of this gender gap. Um, You know, something that I'm aware of that permeates other industries and other aspects of the workforce. But somehow, I guess I thought, you know, I held medicine in such high regard, and I guess I hoped or willfully wished that it didn't uh, it didn't exist in our uh, in our neck of the woods and so this article you know I thought would be really important to cover because it was something that was teaching me a very valuable lesson and and hopefully highlights a very important issue that permeates medicine like all other industries it seems to so in the broader context of things I mean f- as I mentioned physician earning is very hard to estimate and studies that have tried to actually look at this in a you know scholarly way have always been left to rely on surveys um, in general and then there's you know inherent biases and diff- and issues with survey based studies and you know female presence in medicine thankfully has rapidly grown since 1970 where now we have generally parity amongst medical schools as far as the gender balance, which is an excellent progressive move over the last, you know, 40 years. But other studies have consistently demonstrated that there is uh, gender differences in faculty rank. um, And then, as I mentioned, these surveys have suggested an earning difference. So this article really tried to answer the question, is there a gender difference uh, in salaries in medicine, but tried to do it without having to be reliant on a survey-based methodology. Yeah, so the bottom line is that among publicly employed academic physicians at state medical schools in the United States, female physicians earned less than males even after adjusting for physician age, experience, faculty rank, specialty, scientific authorship, National Institutes of Health Funding, Clinical Trial Participation, and Medicare Reimbursements. So a whole bunch of reasons you could expect why somebody may have a difference in their pay. If you adjusted for all that, there was still a residual difference between males and females. Hmm. Excellent. Uh, So I think that's a really important article, as you've kind of defined. But let's get into it. Tell me what the main message of this article was as you saw it. All right, Ariel, I'm going to take you through how this study operated. So this was a retrospective analysis of a database that the authors constructed of academic physician salaries at 24 public medical schools in 12 states in the U.S. And they combined these these salaries that are publicly available because they're employees in a public system. Um, they combined them with those physicians' clinical and research productivity between the years 2011 and 2013. 
the information to their salaries are available through freedom of information laws um, and because they work at a public medical school uh, and not a private uh, enterprise. And then what they did was kind of interesting in a modern day uh, approach. They used comprehensive social media networking database and they collected information on the training specifics, the research productivity, and the NIH, the National Institute of Health, grants and grant successes that these individual physicians have had. And then using publicly available data from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they sorted, they figured out the clinical reimbursement and they inferred work schedules from these reimbursements, whether they, they were full or part-time physician workers, and they linked it all together to sort of look at the, the pay and the, and the associated variables that may help predict uh, somebody's pay between the genders. No kidding. That's pretty complicated. Yeah, it's a complicated uh, way to do it, but it's actually a really interesting way to get around, uh, you know, having to do surveys, um, but get at sort of, you know, private and sometimes sensitive information for individuals. So very neat. Um, the primary outcome was the absolute adjusted difference between male and female income within the same institution. The, as sort of secondary and subgroup analyses, uh, whether those adjusted differences in income specifically related to or were different in specialties and in faculty rank. How did they know what gender one of uh, each participant was? So this database called Doximity is a comprehensive database of U.S. physicians that is obtained from a company that provides online networking services for U.S. physicians. So physicians register within this database themselves and uh, in that way would identify their gender uh, as male or female. And then they used that database to match those individuals to the Centers for Medicare to Medicaid Services database. And they also searched online at the individual medical schools that these physicians worked at to cross-reference the information about who they were, what gender they were, what faculty rank they held, etc., all those different types of information. So they've really drawn from many different uh, resources available to them to try to make sense of all this. And what did they find when they uh, threw it all into the grinder? So let me break that down further for you. Let's get granular on it. So just over 10,000 physicians were included in this study. That represented about 11% of all academic physicians in the United States. It's a lot, a lot of physicians, not the majority of them, but a significant number. 35% of these physicians were women and 65% were men. And this is important to point out because it, it's representative of the demographics that we know about in all U.S. medical schools. So it, they, they haven't selected a population as far as at least their gender split that is largely different than what the actual gender split in U.S. medical schools is. So if you just took the unadjusted difference in salary, so you didn't account for any of these other things that I mentioned above, there was a $51,000 difference in salary that favored male physicians. There was an 18% absolute difference in, in full professorship. There were 18% more males were listed as a full professor versus females. Women were typically about five years younger uh, in this study. And they were, women were more likely to practice uh, in specialties of internal medicine, pediatrics, or OBGYN. Men were more likely to be practicing in cardiology, gastroenterology, orthopedics, radiology, or a surgical subspecialty. So females had half the number of publications 
right? On average, a female academic physician would have 13 publications, first author to her name, versus 26 to her male counterpart. They were less likely to have NIH funding. So 12% of women in this study had NIH funding versus 16% of the men who had funding. So about a 4% difference there. Now, despite all of these differences, it's not a matter of their training or their talent, right? Women were equally as likely to have graduated from a top 20 medical school in terms of you know, the medical schools being ranked according to their research productivity and, and uh, merit. So the, these women trained at equally good schools uh, as the men, and that, that doesn't account for their differences. If you adjust for all that to take it out of the equation, you still have a $20,000 difference which is an 8% difference in salary between men and women. So the obvious question is, of course, what is the mechanism of action? This study does not tell you why women earn less. Right? And, and it was never setting out to try to, to answer that question. It wanted to answer the question, is there a salary difference between gender? And this is what these primary outcome is demonstrating. When you looked the within specialty differences, you've, we still found significant differences within the same specialty. Within nine out of the 18 specialties that they examined, there was still differences where men were more likely to earn more than women, including three specialties that women were more likely to practice in. Well, you know, I think we all look forward to the day where uh, men and women share equally in childcare, but I don't think we've arrived at that day yet. And some folks who are skeptical of the gender pay gap say things like, you know, perhaps it's that women are engaging in more childcare and, and taking maternity leave and, and working less because of those reasons. Does this study have an answer to that particular query? It doesn't. That is one of the commonly held beliefs as to a potential reason why these gender disparities might be present. But there are other, there are other equally plausible, I would say, explanations. Uh, and some of it just comes down to outright discrimination. But I don't think that this study is answering that question. Their discussion, you can posit those explanations. But I don't think it's the place to really get into why this might be, because this study just doesn't answer that. Tell us, uh, what's your takeaway from this study? I think that overall it raises very interesting and controversial inequalities in the U.S. medical academic environment. Um, we have to remember that this type of a study, these are associations. This isn't a randomized trial to really answer the effect of an intervention, right? We don't have an idea as to the causation. And I think the study is limited by the ongoing difficulty in actually calculating physician earnings. They used Medicare database as a proxy for overall earnings. And they tried to, you know, do some, some valiant attempts at statistical adjustment. But in the end, it's still actually not how much the individual physicians in this study are actually earning. And furthermore, it's just physicians who are academic researchers at public U.S. medical schools, right? And maybe there is less gender disparity in educational medicine or administrative medicine, right? They're not capturing those individuals. And I certainly hope there is, although I, I, the information isn't there. So that's, it's a limitation of this study to say that this is broadly permeating all of the medical profession. But I do think that it raises some major concerns, at least within the limits of the public U.S. academic 
research system. And, you know, you asked me my, my overall takeaway. I think one of the really important subtleties or subtexts to this study that really opens the door, or I hope will open the door for further research into this area, is that there were some specialties, radiology, family medicine, and emergency medicine were highlighted, that there were no disparity between genders as far as their pay. And there were two sites of the 24 schools, there was two schools where pay was equal between the men and the women. So what is it about those specialties, the cultures within that specialty or the cultures within that school where the differences don't exist there, albeit they exist elsewhere? So if we can look into why those sites don't have differences in in gender pay, then maybe we can understand how to address a larger picture of overall gender parity as far as the income gap. If you have something to say about either of these studies, please do contact us by email or, uh, or the blog uh, or by Twitter. Um, we would love to hear from you and your thoughts uh, on this important yet sensitive topic. Well, thanks, Ariel. I really appreciate your insight and comments uh, on both the articles today. But now it is time for a lighter-hearted moment, my favorite part of the show, the good stuff, where we're talking about what we're reading about. Ariel, what's catching your attention in the medical news this week? Kieran, my good stuff this week is on a very fascinating topic. So I think that people without mental illness... Uh, have a really kind of carefree and easy time stigmatizing people with mental illness because they don't know anything from anything when it comes to mental illness. They don't know what it's like. You know, we can't imagine what it's like to have schizophrenia, to be hearing voices and to have those delusions. Uh, But uh, actually, a recent segment that I saw on CNN called uh, Exercise in Empathy, Hearing Voices, put Anderson Cooper in this very compromising position where he... Uh, had these headphones in that basically put voices in his head. And so his challenge was to do various tasks uh, and to carry out various uh, puzzles while having these negative voices in his head, which were both distracting emotionally as well as from an attention perspective. And I think that doing things like that, you know, putting yourself really in someone else's shoes, be it through the magic of technology or otherwise, can do a great deal of good in reducing the stigma of mental illness by allowing us to to interact with their reality. It would be fascinating. I would love to try that out. So my Good Stuff segment for this week Uh, is entitled Elementary Dear Watson. It's about the IBM supercomputer Watson. This uh, this article is not about uh, Watson's ability to answer Jeopardy or Medical Jeopardy questions. In fact, it's about the use of Watson in artificial intelligence uh, in the world of cancer precision medicine. So for those of you who don't know, really briefly, Watson is an IBM supercomputer that combines artificial intelligence and a very sophisticated analytical software algorithm that it's now basically called a question-answering machine. Essentially, it's able to process and read text, just as you or I would read text and synthesize and interpret answers around that. But at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine, they took Watson and they tested it on a thousand cancer diagnoses made by human experts. In 99% of the diagnoses, Watson recommended the same treatment as the oncologists. So it's almost as good as a doctor. But in 30% of the cases, 
Watson also found a treatment option that the human doctors actually missed. Um, And some of these treatment options were based on research papers that the doctors hadn't read yet. More than 160,000 cancer research papers are published every year. And Watson can blitz through that in a nanosecond. And so he was able to, to make different recommendations or newer recommendations that the oncologists had not yet seen on the web. That doesn't mean that they were the right treatment options for the patient. And there's still an art to being a doctor where you don't need to be worried about being replaced but uh, they call it enabling humans by using artificial intelligence as the wave of the future for some medical genomics and potentially other medical applications. I think that's fantastic. As the rate at which new data comes out, we as mere human, mere mortals have no chance in parsing through all of that. But it just means that we need to scoff less at the non-medical expert roles such as communicator and collaborator, which are going to be more and more key as, as the robots take over our lives. <laughs> Absolutely. And don't forget to communicate with your robot. It has feelings too, Ariel. Indeed. Thank you very much for joining us this week. It was a real pleasure having you on. I hope you come back and join us again. Please invite me. It will be my pleasure. All right. Take care, listeners. We look forward to talking to you next week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week.